Hello and welcome to Salt of the Earth. This show is about the people making a difference in farm and food at home and abroad. Ireland has some of the best food in the world and this podcast is about connecting the people who produce this food with the people who eat it. Salt of the Earth is proud to be part of both the Farm and Rural Ag Network and the Eat Farm Now Network. For more great ag-related podcasts, videos and blogs, just visit farmruralag.com or eatfarmnow.com. My name is Brendan Byrne and on today's show we're with Dr. Patrick Wall, who is Professor of Public Health in University College Dublin. Professor Wall qualified in veterinary medicine in University College Dublin and in human medicine at the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland. In addition, Professor Wall was the first Chief Executive of the Irish Food Safety Authority and the second Chairperson of the European Food Safety Authority which is a pan-EU agency with a remit on food safety for the entire food and feed supply chains. Hello, Professor Wall. You're very welcome to today's show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You're, you're very welcome to Wexford. So, um, I say this show is about people making a difference in farm and food, and for people who mightn't be familiar with you, Paddy, could you tell us a little bit about your background growing up or what you studied, please? Well, I, I come from Ireland, and very typical Irish young lad growing up, I was very lucky, coming from a big family. Uh, how, many, how many were in the family? There were seven kids and myself. Well, I was one of the kids, shall I say, seven of us all together. And, uh, and we were lucky, um, but the um, good parents, you know, were sort of always, were never hungry. Uh, we were never wealthy, but we were never hungry. Uh, I always wanted to be a vet. I was a fanatic about animals when I was growing up, so luckily enough, I ended up in the veterinary college. Uh, although my dad wasn't a farmer, although he comes from farming background, he was actually a, a bank manager. In the bank old, manager? Yeah, in an old bank branch called the Munster and Linster Bank. Oh, and what, that, what's that become since? AIB. AIB, very good. So in that time, you couldn't be in the bank in the town you lived in, because you'd obviously know the neighbour's business, that wouldn't be right. And it, once you were three years in a the place, they felt you started getting too friendly with everyone, you'd have to be moved. So we were like the travellers, we kept moving. So I was at, uh, we lived in 10 different places, and uh, I, I went to three secondary schools. So, uh, like, uh, every one of us have a different accent, because we left the house in a different town, you know. Anyway, that was it. I was lucky I ended up in the veterinary school, and I did veterinary, and I enjoyed doing veterinary. I did large animal practice, uh, and I specialised in horses. And after I was doing that for a while, I uh, took a notion that I'd like to work in a developing country. And I went to the Overseas Development Agency, and they said, well, look, we don't have any jobs for vets and if we did have a job for a vet the last vet we'd need is a racehorse vet but if you're a doctor we're desperate uh, for doctors so I thought that this would be just like a mechanic working on lorries switching over to cars so I said I wonder how much time would I get off for being a, a, a vet if I applied to do become a doctor you know so I, I uh, anyway I applied to the medical school and I, I got in but I didn't I ended up finishing the course and uh, became a doctor and down the road I ended up, I had a great time as a medical student. It was like being a second childhood again, you know, so that was great. And I worked in Africa for, uh, after a few hospital jobs in Ireland, I worked in Africa for three years and I came back and I uh, specialised in infectious diseases in the UK. And uh, I never told anyone I was a vet because they say, oh God, don't go that far, he's a vet, he'll give you anything. But then food safety became a huge issue and BSC, mad cow disease became a huge issue and I kind of resurrected the veterinary degree and I got very involved with that and then I ended up getting headhunted. Only time it's ever happened to me, never happened since, to be the chief executive of the Irish Food Safety Authority. So I came back to Ireland and I'd been at that stage, I'd been out of Ireland 11 years, I'd worked in several different countries. 
came back to be the Chief Executive of the Food Safety Authority of Ireland and contributed to setting that up. It was important for Ireland that we calm the whole issue down after BSE because of beef is such an important uh, export industry to us. And uh, then when I finished that job I ended up as the uh, Chairperson of the European Food Safety Authority based in Parma in Italy. And uh, that was interesting too, you know, and why I was in that job. I wouldn't say that I was any great chairman. It was just that Ireland never colonised anybody. It was probably a compromise candidate, and that's how I got elected. But it was good, and uh, I had a lot of Parma ham in my time out there. Had a great time and met very interesting people and learned a lot. And uh, I did a few more things then when I finished with that, and I eventually ended up back up in UCD working in academia as a professor of public health. And I know I work in the medical school in UCD, and I'm very fortunate. The whole place is full of young people who are naively positive about life and there's a great buzz in the place. doesn't matter whether it's a Monday or a Friday, it's a tonic to work there and I hope I'm never discovered because it's a pleasure to be in the place and you know if you can encourage young people to go on to do great things, uh, you know it's a great rewarding job. So you, you did, did, unusual I suppose the two degrees, so what, did it give you a different perspective do you think? Well I mean there's a whole specialty now which wasn't there in my time, I was the first to, to person that I knew that did it, now there's been a few since, but called One Health, which relates to the health of the environment, the health of animals, and the health of people, and like you can, people are all the time talking now, but the health of people is inextricably linked to the health of the animals, which form the food that they eat, and the health of the planet. So like, you know, like I, I, I'm in that space now, so One Health is my specialty area, and uh, it's a fascinating area, and so like really, because I, although I did medicine, I, I was never that hung up on a therapeutic solution for everything. And so basically, I was always amazed that the animal nutritionists were far more focused on the performance of the animals than human nutritionists and medics. Like uh, medical doctors in their training spend maybe two years doing uh, uh, pharmacology, but they don't spend two years doing nutrition. How, how long? They'd get a handful of lectures in their course in most colleges on mm. nutrition, you know, because nutrition is perceived to be the remit of a nutritionist, and that's another course completely. So basically, uh, there's an awful lot of conditions that are lifestyle related, not only diet related, but, you know, uh, smoking, alcohol consumption, lack of exercise, recreational drug use, you know, driving your car too fast or whatever. And so, like, really, you know, a lot of this disease could be prevented by lifestyle interventions and it's you know it's not really the role of doctors alone to sort this out like we talk about behavioral psychologists behavioral economists psychologists anthropologists to influence human behavior because many people know that they they should look after their health better like you know i always say to people what's your most valuable asset people often say their farm their stocks and shares whatever but like usually your their house but like your most valuable asset is your health and often for a lot of people it doesn't dawn on them yeah, just just happens. explain that you've you've experienced that. So what well, does how does that mean, or you know what well, does like that? We've many patients when they get diagnosed with cancer, they start taking up yoga and they start taking modifying their diet and start taking exercise, which is all good stuff. But like sometimes it's too late. Or many people who, when they've had a cardiac bypass or or, or stents, they then like they boast that we're walking five miles a day since I've had my bypass. And for some people, and I'd say only some people. For some people, if they had walked a few miles a day before it, they wouldn't have done it. And, you know, I see it all the time with kids that are sick. Parents are too busy working sometimes to mind their kids, but then whenever their kids are sick, it just dawns on them and, like, they, they uh, 
can down tools and make as much time as possible for the people that they love. And so there isn't a person that's listening to this podcast that wouldn't give the lot of winnings to have someone that they love who's sick well again or somebody that they love who's dead back again. So sometimes you think we, we have our priorities wrong and we're kind of driven by a consumer society that's racing and we think we need more and more and more and like quality of life is a huge issue and looking after yourself and your family and you're not being selfish to look after yourself. Some people feel that, you know, to try and be in a positive frame of mind and be positive with so many people around you that are having a bad luck, you know, it's not fair on them. But if you're positive, you know, you can handle problems better and like uh, you don't change what's happened. And some people have, to have, to have had tough deals, but it doesn't change what's happened, but it might help you deal with it better. And if you're positive, maybe you can lift the people around you. So mental health is as important as physical health. And but. You know, when you say to people, well, what did you do for your health today? You know, people service their car and they've actually done lots of different things, but sometimes people don't devote enough time for their health. And we, we've often done studies of diaries, particularly uh, uh, doctors, they're notorious for working. Well, I suppose farmers are the same, notorious for working on, but we, say, we look at their diaries and see in their diaries, where's the time allocated to themselves? And so you shouldn't make a bit of time every day for yourself. Yeah, it's important. Like, uh, because it's too late when you've lost your health. It's the most valuable thing you have. And so therefore, people don't think about what they eat until they get sick. People don't think that they should be taking more exercise. And it's not a lot of exercise. You, know, you only have to take a little bit of exercise and modify what you eat slightly, and you can uh, stay, uh, stay healthy. Yeah. And, and a bit of rest. Rest is important too. Like, you know, especially farmers now, and I, 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 I see it in Ireland since the quotas went, and. It, farming is increasing in scale like you know and like how many cows are you milking now yes you're nearly it's nearly a state as simple to say you've got the father and mother of an all singing all dancing rotary yeah and your poor neighbor who's milking 100 cows god help him whereas in fact if you measure it up he's at home every even having his tea when you're out with your 350 cows calving them and trying to find out which cow belong to which cows you know and so there's a balance there's a balance yeah there's a balance and it's not all about uh it's got to be like is the best farm the farm that makes the most money or the farm where there's the best family life as well as having enough money to pay the bills yeah absolutely like work worrying about labor can you get the labor worrying about how you're going to get rid of the story it's coming up through the slats how are you going to worry you have no calf accommodation for the male calves and they all come out how are you going to cope with that like all that is mental stress and do you really need it all very true um at the well, start at the start i just said uh, Part of the, this podcast mission is to empower farmers to connect with consumers. And I'll just kind of draw a little picture of what we're talking about there. So nowadays, consumers are increasingly becoming disconnected from food production. In addition, the agri-industry is facing enormous pressure as a result of changing consumer habits, now very much with a focus on health, wellness and changing diets. So, for example, it was in recently on the, on the paper there, 41% of Irish women are cutting back on dairy. Now, that's women aged between 20 and 29. And it appears that fat, allergy and intolerance are the three areas where most of the health questioning is coming uh, on dairy. So how can the agri-industry and farmers answer these questions and help bridge this ever-widening gap? Well, I think, you see, uh, I always say that uh, farmers are in the health business and uh, they should be champions for the health business. Like doctors and nurses, they're not in the health business. They're in the sickness business. So like people, if they eat good quality food, they'll be healthy. You are what you eat. So no adage in Ireland is still true. And so sometimes farmers allow themselves to be on the back foot. They're always on the defensive because they're getting attacked. Primary agricultural output is getting attacked now. Red meat is bad for you. 
dairy products clog up your arteries, eggs are full of cholesterol, you name it, there's actually the products have been attacked. So like we need to connect a bit more with the consumers and rather than actually always trying to be defend what we're doing, we need to be promoting the positives about what we're doing. And so like the consumers have concerns and without consumers, we won't have a business if you're a farmer. So basically the consumers are concerned about animal welfare, they're concerned about the environmental impact of modern farming practices and they're concerned about nutrition and health. And so basically, we should address all three for them. And we, the farmers in Ireland are well able to do that. There's a lot of concern about greenhouse gases and livestock yeah. production. And it's interesting that the Chinese uh, have ruminant nutritionists who are gurus mm. on studying the microbiome, which is mm. the microbial flora inside in the rumen. Mm. But they're doing it in artificial rumens. They're not near cows at all. Right. And they study all the different bugs that are there. And they're looking to see how could you inhibit the bugs that produce methane. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're collaborating with uh, some New Zealand uh, researchers. The New Zealanders are doing field work on this. They have fistulated cows mm -hmm. where the cow has a stopper in its side, right. like a stopper in the sink, yep. where they can actually monitor the microbiome, which is the microbial flora, mm -hmm. and then they're in the cow's rumen. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, you can modify the cow's rumen by one, either inhibiting the methane mm -hmm. producing bacteria or actually uh, giving the, uh, knocking them out completely. Mm -hmm. So the idea that they've got, now got a feed additive that can actually reduce methane consumption by 60%. It works at about 100 euros per lactation equivalent, mm -hmm. but it's not actually approved for use in the EU yet. But like perhaps in, uh, in Ireland, if I was, uh, I would don 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 donate a lot of money to this because basically there's actually, for research, because basically one, you can identify cows that genetically produce less methane, mm -hmm. and two, you could, uh, identify strategies to reduce the methane producing bacteria in the cow and so when people are criticizing the farmers about uh, producing greenhouse gases the answer is say oh yeah we acknowledge that cows produce greenhouse mm. gases but we're working at producing a, a climate friendly cow that will wow. produce much less greenhouse gases and in combination with uh, uh, hedge grows and uh, planting more young trees on the farms we're going to actually we're aiming to have carbon neutral farms have you got any other problems? <laughs> and so rather than be on the yeah, defensive, yeah. let's say, well, okay, let's look at yeah. it. The people are, have concerns. Without addressing consumer concerns, we don't have any consumers and we don't want to be, the potential is there for us to do this kind of work. And mm -hmm. when I see the young people in the ag faculty in UCD, the sky's the limit of what could be achieved. And they are fascinated by the idea that you could actually manipulate the cow's rumen and produce a climate friendly cow. Mm -hmm. And then people that are actually uh, anti livestock are nearly at it with a religious fervor. They're so mm -hmm. passionate about it. But there's another group that are equally passionate that we can actually produce animals without damaging the environment. And I think actually, you know, we need to have a bit of fair play on the pitch. So there's there's definitely opportunity there to Huge, huge opportunities. And Ireland should be in the vanguard. Like we should actually market Ireland as a centre of excellence for food production, a centre of excellence for high quality research in food safety, in animal welfare in food and nutrition and in mitigating the environmental impact of livestock production so that people look to Ireland as a centre of excellence. And we also need to be remembering that the domestic market is like the minor game. Because in Ireland we have, our industry is an export focus industry, the minor game is in Ireland but the senior game is abroad. True. And so therefore we, but you have to have good miners or you'll never have good seniors. So we need to look after, and Ireland is a pilot, like the, for, I think the outlook is very, very good for farming. And I, like, a, like I do a little bit of work in China and like they've an insatiable appetite for powder and for protein at the moment. And so like the outlook looks very good for us, you know, so we don't have to be depressed. Mm. And like 
sometimes in Ireland we're very negative, you know, yes. and there's too much knocking, you know, and there's a lot of misinformation out there about the diets, you know, and the people trying to promote a one diet for all. We live in a democracy. If you want to chop up the newspapers and eat them every morning with your cornflakes, fair enough. We, you can eat whatever you want. We live in a democracy, so we shouldn't knock anybody. If somebody wants to be uh, a complete carnivore, fair enough, that's their decision. If they want to be a vegetarian, that's their decision. If they want to be a vegan, that's their decision. And so we should respect people's opinions. They can do what they want. But basically, the point I made earlier on was about, when I worked as a vet, I studied uh, animal health. And a huge component of animal health, whether it's poultry, pigs, dairy cows, uh, is all around nutrition, mm-hmm. programmed nutrition. And so we've, we, we talk about in, in, in the animal side, a life stage nutrition. So we give the, the animals the exact micro and macronutrients they need for their age. Like a broiler chicken lives for 38 days, four or five different diets. A pig lives for 155 days, nine different diets. So there's a diet for the uh, creep feed, there's a lactate, lactating sow diet, there's creep feed, there's wiener rashers, there's grower rations, there's finisher rations, exactly what the pig needs for a certain time and it's, it's uh, uh, growth curves have been measured and it's been monitored and you give them exactly what they need and you pick up if there's something wrong. Now for humans, during our life we have lots and lots of different stages where we need different types of nutrients and the only time we get exactly what we need is when we're a small baby where we're either getting breast milk or infant formula and that's the only time we're measured. After that it's a free for all, everyone's eating the same which is not, not, not uh, the most accurate way to do things because like, you know when you see your little kids how the way they run around and the speed they're growing at. Like, the nutritional requirement for a small kid is very different from an older child. A teenager going through the physiological revolution of puberty, huge demands on her body. Young adult, a sedentary middle-aged person or a frail elderly person, completely different nutrient requirements. So the idea that you'd come up with a, a, a kind of a mandate that everybody should have the same diet. Yeah. Like there are, there, we have an obesity problem. We have to acknowledge that. We have an epidemic of diabetes type two. So there's a huge bunch of people in the middle that are sedentary, that want to eat, eat uh, uh, less rubbish and more quality food and less, probably less volume of food. But there are other people that need to eat more food, good quality. And like one of my pet projects is, uh, because I'm getting there myself, is nutrition in the elderly. Like there's a condition in the elderly called sarcopenia. Sarcopenia is when you lose muscle mass as you get older and you get frail and then, then you get weak. And the next but, thing when you, does that kick in? Buddy? You age? start gradually losing muscle mass when you're 50. Right. And it increases in pace, you know. Now, so all of us know people who stayed young because they've stayed upright. But like, you know that your father and mother might have been uh, bigger than you at one stage and then they end up smaller than you. That's this sarcopenia. But effectively, you can actually, it's not necessary to, to have a rapid uh, sarcopenia. Mm. You can slow this down. So imagine if I said to the farmers, lads, you've got four aces, or, and, and ladies, you've got four aces and you're failing to play them. You have a product that can slow down the aging process. Like I keep horses. If I want the horses to look well, I'm not rubbing in Oreo moisturizing cream into their skin. <laughs> I change the diet, put a bit more oil in the diet and the horse's skin looks better. And it's exactly that way. Nutrition. Yep. Nutrition. So the idea that you could eat yourself young. Yeah. So a fr- a fr- an elderly person needs protein. Now, they're, they're not able to eat massive T-bone steaks because they wouldn't have the digestive system to handle it, nor would they have the teeth to chew it. So they need the bioavailable protein. And so you see um, 
whey protein, which is a phenomenal product for uh, muscle metabolism. And it's used by the bodybuilders. And you can see the, the athletes are huge now and the rugby players because they take the whey. But like the idea of whey would be a very, a very good product for the, uh, for the elderly. You'd have to take Arnie Schwarzenegger off the cover and have your granny firing her zimmer frame over the hedge on the packet. But like there's not much joy having whey drinks. So the idea that you'd feed the elderly people uh, uh, eggs are, for example, a very good source of protein. Chicken, a very good source of protein. But eggs, for example, you know, scramble egg for your breakfast. It's easy to digest. Anyone that looked after an old person know how difficult it is to get them to to, to eat. eat. You know, and mm -hmm. so uh, creme brulee and custard for the lunch and an omelette for the tea. Very easy to digest. Diced chicken, uh, minced meat, like fantastic sources of bioavailable protein. When I mean bioavailable, I mean it's easy for them to absorb it. And if you wanted a, an elderly person to be a vegan, you'd have to give them that many lentils that satiety will kick in before they could eat it all. It wouldn't be comfortable for them to eat it all. And so therefore to say, for, for my opinion about, about uh, vegetarian and vegan diets, they're grand for subsets of the population, but it's a bit more difficult for others. And so you have to have balance in your life, you know? And uh, uh, quality of the food that you eat is crucial to your, to your health. And, yep. uh, uh, as I say, you know, people promoting the one diet for everybody. Just think of the pigs with nine different diets. There is no one diet for everybody. And like for a lot of uh, men in Ireland, for example, I always say it's okay to eat like a plowman if you are a plowman. But a lot of people who are working in offices and are working, they could benefit by cutting back seriously on what they're eating, you know. In Ireland, it amazes me to see the, the design of the supermarkets because Dairy products is now deemed to be bad for you, and the dairy sector is getting smaller and smaller. And usually low fat. And meat is getting small. Meat sector is getting smaller and smaller. And that there's rows and rows of confectionery. You know, buy 20 bags of crisps, get six free. Gatto, jumbo gatto, 20% XX, or jumbo cans of Coke, like Coca-Cola. You know, uh, premium price for the product. Rots nails, rush your teeth, no nutritious value. There you have the jumbo cans. Then the alcohol section is getting bigger and bigger in most supermarkets. So like, like the consumer isn't rational. If you're a dairy farmer, you can nearly predict the order your cows are going to come into the parlor every day. You can't predict what consumers will do. And like there's, there's fads and like it's important that people think about their diet. And many people who are vegetarians are healthy. And the reason they're healthy is a multitude of reasons. Because one, they have to be well motivated to become a vegetarian. So they're actually motivated to think about the relationship between diet and health. And so they're actually doing other things as well. They're probably not smoking, they're not drinking as much, or if not drinking at all, and they're taking more exercise. So there's a whole package there. And so there's a lot of lessons that the whole population can learn from that subset. Very good. We discussed over a cup of tea about, I just mentioned that one of the healthcare providers on insurance, VHI, recently posted about plant-based plant diets aren't just trendy, you know, they're, they're, they're actually promoting them, you know, for reducing the risk of heart disease. So I suppose, just to recap what you're saying there, you know, no one diet fits all, isn't no that No one diet fits yeah. all, and, yeah. and most people don't eat enough fruit and vegetables. And like fibre is very, very important in the mm -hmm. diet. And so a lot of people are deficient in fruit and vegetables and fibre. So there's, you couldn't eat enough fruit and vegetables. It's positive. Yeah. And like a lot of vegetables have phytosterols, which lower cholesterol. And so it's a, you know, like knocking vegetables wouldn't be the terrible wrong thing to do. But like meat isn't, for me, meat isn't inherently evil. And for some people, they manage without it. But for other people, it has a role for them. Some people suffer from uh, uh, chronic anemia, benefit from the meat. Some people are actually uh, 
debilitated because of chronic disease and like you want to put them into an anabolic state because mm-hmm. they'll heal quicker and so a lot of people recovering from cancer a lot of people recovering from uh, chronic diseases and, and, and transplants etc etc you want to have them on a good nutrition plane not to be eating rubbishy food mm-hmm. good quality food and whether that's a meat based diet with vegetables obviously mm-hmm. or a, vegetable, a vegetarian diet or a vegan diet it has to be good quality diet covering all the micro and macronutrients that they need Sometimes pure vegan diets, people have to take supplements to make sure they get all the micronutrients. So you have to wonder, is, um, is, is it very natural to be having to take tablets to keep yourself alive uh, and to have a healthy diet? And also, your body is designed to absorb your micronutrients in a food matrix mm-hmm. rather than as a capsule. So like, uh, but uh, you know, the whole thing is I think everybody should be thinking about what they eat yeah. and cutting back on stuff that is obviously of minimal nutritious value. Excellent. A study we, we mentioned before there was, you know, the decline in nutrient density in certain foods. There's a, a, a study from the US between 1950 and the turn of the century where 43 different types of fruit and veg crops uh, that the nutrients were actually declining. Uh, another report said that you'd actually need to eat double the amount of broccoli that you did a generation ago. So is that, you know, generally speaking, is it, from a human health and a nutrition perspective, is nutrient density food in, in food a cause for concern, the decline, you know, there is, if, if there is this decline, and is it a concern? I'd say so, and like, uh, often like, with, with, uh, like food is cheap, which is uh, you know, really it's the most important thing we, we have to spend our money on, yet uh, it's too cheap, I think, and as a result, the savage pressure on all the suppliers and growers to produce as much as they can, as quickly as they can, and so therefore a lot of vegetables are driven up fast that they haven't time to absorb all the nutrients and so like a more mature growing uh, uh, product actually may be more nutrient dense is right you know so mm. that is a point and uh, so people might think they're doing the right thing eating a lot of fruit and veg uh, but if it's actually not as nutrient dense as they think it is they're not getting the full benefit so it is it is a concern yeah. it is a concern and it reflects back to your one health really doesn't it the well whole, i mean i think actually we need to yeah. actually uh, have uh, we need to be able to produce food, good quality food, without wrecking the environment. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes when we're driving the vegetable production, we're actually, uh, you know, we have to use a lot of agrochemicals, mm-hmm. which may not be necessary if we did it a little bit more slower growing varieties or whatever. Uh, also in, you know, there's a lot of people like organic food and I have an organic garden myself, mm-hmm. but I only eat the organic food that I grow myself in Ireland. Mm-hmm. But you see organic food available the whole year round and you just wonder about air miles and where it's coming from, etc., etc. You know, uh, but I think actually people don't think enough about what they eat. People should think about what they eat, and farmers should need to be actually promoting the fact that they're in the food business, producing good products and like quality. And like we we need to drive up the price, and then we we wouldn't have to produce as much. So yeah. people actually think that, you know, are we are we origin green is 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 a, is a kind of a slogan that we have for Ireland, the little green island, the breadbasket yes. of Europe, which is a unique selling point for Ireland and the family farm in Ireland was what makes us special and the way the farm, like a, a cow can have a better lifetime experience in Ireland than anywhere else or that's what we'd like to think. Mm-hmm. But once you start scaling up, we're moving away from, which, which, from the thing that made us special, the family farm and thankfully we still have the family farms in Ireland where people have pride and passion like uh, for their product. But when you go to some of the big farms in the US now, you'll find, I don't know how they're going to manage uh, when they build a wall, but a lot of the farms are the actual farm owners aren't there. It's actually the uh, 
Mexican workers that are running the farm, whereas in Ireland you'll actually find the farm owner there and they've a pride and a passion in the farm. And when we bring uh, visitors to Ireland and they visit the farms, they can't fail to be impressed by the family farm model. You can find factory farms everywhere. Mm -hmm. now, there's nothing wrong with scale. There's nothing wrong with scale. And uh, obviously when it comes to an animal welfare point of view, uh, it's not the scale of the farm that's the issue, it's how the farm is managed. Because on a large farm you can control the water, you can control the air, you can control, the, control everything if you're able to control it. But like you might be a good manager for a smaller farm, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean you can manage a bigger farm. It's, it's, it requires especially, you're more of a, a person manager than a stockman True. when you get to the big farms because you need to manage the labour. And that's a huge issue for, for Ireland, for the bigger farms to get the labour. Very good. We've all heard about the law of unintended consequences <clears throat> and about 15 years ago the Irish government re repealed the groceries order which banned the sale of grocery goods at below cost. And I said globally we're aware about chief food policies and I suppose the question is if food is sold solely on price does it inevitably mean a race to the bottom from a quality perspective and if so what can be done about it? I think actually it's true you know it's quite amazing like you know uh, we have a, a people, will they pay extra for, for extra quality food? People actually do. Price is a huge influencer. And once you have this race to the bottom, people maybe take shortcuts. And, uh, you know, we've had episodes of food fraud throughout uh, the European Union. And uh, whether it's olive oil or, or horse meat replacing beef or different fish, different varieties of fish replacing each other. Like once the price gets low, that's an incentive for fraud. But I think actually uh, consumers should be in the driving seat here. And I think actually, you know, you wouldn't put petrol into a diesel car, but people, it surprises me what they're prepared to eat mm. and pay that little bit extra for your food. It's quite amazing that people in Ireland are increasingly look for a therapeutic solution. Like when you have high blood pressure because you're, because you're overweight and aren't taking enough exercise, do you need more antihypertensive tablets from your GP? Or do you need to go on a diet and take a bit more exercise? And like, it, there's a, there's a, the solution is actually often in people's own hands. Now, some people suffer ill health and it's of no, sure. it's not their own fault. And so I wouldn't like to blame people mm -hmm. for it. But there's a lot of lifestyle related disease in Ireland. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have alcohol consumption patterns in Ireland, which we consider normal, that in other jurisdictions would be deemed pathological. Like, and I'm not against people having a drink, but like, I mean, you know, Clinton came to Ireland, we had to bring him to Fagans and Jordan Contra and have a picture of him drinking a pint. We had to have a picture of Obama drinking a pint. Even the Queen, we had a picture of her drinking a pint. You know, so like, <laughs> really, you know, is that what we really want to portray ourselves in Ireland? You know, we, we sure. have a, a, I see the young people that we have in, in UCD now and like, um, you know, it's, you'd have to be seriously optimistic for the future of Ireland mm. to see the creative and innovative young people that we have. And we're living in now in a, there's a digital revolution going on at the moment, which is making people more sedentary. Yeah. And uh, it's changing the way people interact with each other and uh, how the people shop and et cetera, et cetera. So like, we just have to get the focus back that like, you know, health is your most valuable asset. And you might think other things are, but that's not the case. Absolutely. And the, the medics don't have the solution really? for every illness yeah. under the sun. So mm -hmm. like the idea, if you can prevent illness, isn't it far better to focus on prevention rather than cure? True. You mentioned China before there, and it's just been announced about beef exports to China. They're set to increase tenfold. W will this market continue to grow, and will it help underpin the beef industry here in Ireland? 
Well, I mean, you know, the beef industry in Ireland is in one big mess at the moment. Uh, like we talk about the word sustainability a lot. It's mentioned all the time, but there's nothing sustainable about an industry where one of the players doesn't make a margin. And we talk about fair trade coffee and fair trade bananas, but like we could have fair trade beef. Now, beef consumption in parts uh, of our customer base has dropped. Like the beef consumption in the UK has gone down a third in the last five years. Mm -hmm. So basically that was one of our uh, special markets and a combination of that and Brexit has impacted on beef consumption. So like, uh, are we producing too much beef? Is there an, an imbalance in the supply demand curve? And uh, I'd have to say myself that we can continue what we've been doing in the beef industry. We have to change. Uh, but I don't think uh, it's unreasonable for farmers to ask for a fair margin for what they're doing. Sure. And if, if the reason that the price of beef is bad is that there's a complete surplus of beef, well, then we need to cut back. If people are saying that we don't need the large, uh, big T-bone steaks, that the market isn't for roasts anymore, it's for more convenience food and for smaller cuts because we've got all this emphasis on smaller portions. In fact, I was at the Ploughing, mm -hmm. which is a big festival every autumn in Ireland, a fantastic uh, festival, but the, at the Borbia stand, the farmers were actually... Uh, uh, complaining about the price of beef and that the Borbia weren't doing enough of them. But it, had they gone around four or five rows, there was actually the HSE had a stand where dietitians were telling people about a healthy diet and they were holding out their hand and they were saying the portion of meat that you should have every day should fit into the palm of your hand. And uh, so, like, there's mixed messages there. Like, if, you, if, if the question is that we need smaller portions, do we need smaller breeds of cattle? Do we need earlier mm -hmm. maturing breeds of cattle? And you know, but I think we have a point that we have grass-fed Irish is what we market ourselves at. And if we're finishing the cattle in sheds, they never see the light of day, they can't call them grass-fed Irish. So we need to look at what does the market want and produce what the market wants. If it's a question that uh, for parts of rural Ireland, uh, you know, people always want to do what they've always done. And it's a fantastic life to be a beef farmer and to go to the marts and go to the, have the crack and, you know, like, but you're, you know, you sometimes say, like, I'd still like to be going to Mass on a Sunday with the pony and trap, but I have to change. So things aren't going to be the same. We can't do, like, you, like most of the farmers are saying that uh, 350 kilo base prices, they can't continue with mm -hmm. this. So we can't, we have to change. So the question is, how do we change and what do we change to? Now, if the beef industry goes, it's going to have some massive negative effect on rural Ireland. Mm -hmm, sure. So we need to say, how can we protect rural communities? And so therefore we need to find another way. Now, farmers are reluctant, they say, to take handouts from Brussels, but there will be no handouts from Brussels. If the consumers are concerned about um, greenhouse gases, mm -hmm. okay, let's see, we, 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 farmers actually can grow hedgerows and, and we, we, in the past we were taking all the hedges out and putting mm -hmm. electric fences for dairy farms, but if hedgerows sequester carbon, if you're paid mm -hmm. to sequester carbon, that's a positive. And so uh, money from Brussels is coming every year. You're not waiting on the fluctuations in the market sure. so you can be sure of it. If it was a question that you were paid to put 20 acres of solar panels and that solar panels was allowed access to grid and be written off against the, the given carbon credits given to agriculture, if you were paid for, you could put the 20 acres of solar panels on a party farm that's not visible True. from the road, so it's aesthetically, but if it's, if it's a income for a stream for you, fair enough. So like basically your farm is an asset, so how can you maximize the return from your asset, look after your family, make sure you have a good quality life, live in the countryside, contribute to your local community. It may not, ha it may not be 
doing the things that we've always done. Or like, the way we've done them, maybe. Yes. Or the way we've done yeah. them. And it's, it's sad that way, but like mm. all you have to look around you, things... I mean, I, I'm not 100 years of age, but I used to remember coming home saying to the mother, did anyone call when I was out? Yes, and Now, if I left my mobile phone behind me, I'd go back for it, you yeah. know? Yeah. I mean, things just keep changing. So yeah. we'll probably have to change the way we... The beef industry isn't can't continue the way it's going. So we need... One thing I think we need in Ireland is we need a united farmer voice. Sure. Because, like, basically to explore all the other opportunities to mm-hmm. deliver revenue for farmers in rural Ireland. We're not saying that we want to put all the farmers on a reservation. We want to make sure that the farmers have an opportunity to live in rural Ireland and get a return from their farms. Very good. Paddy, you've been very good. Very interesting talking to you. You're busy at work, as I can see. You're, you said you were just back from your travels abroad there. and I just wondered, part of this podcast is about keeping yourself fit and healthy, so... What do you do to keep yourself fit and healthy? What do I do? Yeah. Well, uh, I've, uh, uh, well, I suppose this isn't politically correct, but I have a, a, a passion for hounds, yeah. hunting hounds and, uh, and horses. So I have a hounds that's a foot pack of hounds that, like where I live, people have a couple of hounds each and we all join up and then we have their hounds. So they have to be exercised every day. So that actually is compulsive exercise. And I, I have a horse and I ride the horse every few times a week. Now, he's getting most of the exercise, but yes, at least I'm yes, getting yeah. the fresh air. And there's a concept uh, uh, called uh, the Blue Gym. The, in the University of Medical School, mm-hmm. there's a, a researcher there called Michael DePledge, yeah. and he has a concept called the Blue Gym, and he's comparing the benefits of exercising outdoors with nature, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, exercising in, um, in a gymnasium. And mm-hmm. so the idea, like when I'm riding my horse around, I'm benefiting from nature, listening mm-hmm. to the birds, listening to ride up along the... The, the river and hear the water uh, river and so on the horse might be getting the exercise but I'm getting the mental benefit of that all mm-hmm. and uh, but in this blue gym concept like uh, when you're outdoors your uh, blood pressure is reduced mm-hmm. your adrenaline and cortisol levels fall your serotonin levels which is influences your mood changes and your endorphin levels rise and so compare that yes mild exercise with somebody doing a spinning class and the music banging yep. in their ears like they are benefiting the cardiovascular system there's no mm-hmm. question about that but the point I'm trying to make here is you don't have to do that strenuous exercise to give yourself some benefit. Now, I could get a heart attack when I'm leaving here, right? <laughs> but I hope I don't. But I think actually that I do appreciate the countryside and I yeah. like actually walking around uh, and riding a horse and having a bit of crack with the hounds and a bit of banter too. I think actually social interaction with people is important, having mm. the crack and good laugh and humour. That's very important. I mean, yeah. like we can... It'd be serious for long enough. Like you know, you need to have a, a diversion from your work, and a lot of people define themselves by their job. But really, you know, the priorities in your life are, it shouldn't really be your job. Okay, we need the jobs to get yeah. the money, but your priority are, should be yourself and your family and your friends, and make time for them because life is a journey, and the destination is the same for us all—a hole in the ground. Yes. So the, the whole thing is we've got to enjoy the trip. For yeah. how long it is, we have to enjoy it. True, true. Right. Look, you've been great. It's been really interesting. I wish you ongoing success with your endeavours in academia and beyond, with the horses as well. So, Pat, thanks very much for joining us on Salt of the Earth today. My name is Brendan Byrne, and you have been listening to Salt of the Earth. Catch us on Twitter at Salt Earth Era. So, until the next time, it's Slán, goodbye, and good luck. Mm-hmm.